Chapter One of the Reign of George the Sixth, nineteen hundred to nineteen twenty five. A forecast written in the year seventeen sixty three. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Reign of George the Sixth, nineteen hundred to nineteen forty five. A forecast written in the year seventeen sixty three by Samuel Madden. Chapter One, AD nineteen hundred. First Acts of This Prince's Reign ministerial changes national debt state of europe the very first acts of this prince's reign were such as caught the attention of all europe footnote he ascended the throne the sixteenth of february nineteen hundred in footnote they indicated not only a soaring genius but a judgment far beyond his years the nation had formed the most ardent hopes of their young sovereign in his education and very youth he had given signs of what was one day to be expected of him, and all ranks of people turned their weary eyes on him as their pilot through that sea of troubles which it was too evident was rising to overwhelm them. The king in all his actions showed himself worthy of their confidence. His father's ministry was composed of a set of men who, though they did not want abilities, were not such as he chose to employ but his inclinations in this point could not be fully indulged from several circumstances the duke of bedford lord high treasurer had such prodigious interest in the parliament owing more to his immense riches than his personal merit that his removal would have been dangerous so he continued him in his post till a more favourable opportunity should offer itself the duke of northumberland was removed from being president of the council and was succeeded by the earl of surrey the duke of marlborough was made secretary of state for the southern department and the marquis of kildare for the northern lord sands and mr stevens retiring with pensions footnote in the eighteenth century the two secretaries of state bore these names and were supposed to divide the cognizance of foreign affairs between them the northern secretary in addition to superintending the affairs of northern europe was also supposed to keep an eye on ireland this clumsy arrangement was abolished in 1782, when home and foreign secretaries were created. In footnote, the Duke of Suffolk, Lord Privy Seal, in the room of the Duke of St. Albans, and the Duke of Grafton, First Lord of the Admiralty, which then happened to be vacant by the death of the Duke of Atoll. These were the principal alterations which were made in the great offices of state. Footnote. These changes took place in February and the beginning of March, 1900, in footnote. But the above personages were not possessed of equal authority, or entrusted with the same confidence by the king. It was at first foreseen that the principal share of power would rest in the Duke of Suffolk, who possessed his majesty's ear more than any of his other servants, and was designed to succeed the Duke of Bedford as soon as he could be removed with safety this young nobleman was of a disposition congenial with his sovereigns he had improved his mind by reading the most celebrated authors and possessed that penetrating genius which easily comprehends and fully attains the objects of its study he had travelled through the principal courts of europe and understood their different interests and connections with abundance of ease and perspicuity he possessed the confidence and friendship of the king who loved him but his promotion gave offence to many, and caused great envy as he was originally of a mean family, and besides was sometimes apt to behave rather haughtily to his superiors. Footnote. 
This dukedom of Suffolk must therefore be supposed to be a new creation of the reign of George V, and not connected with the earldom of the same name held by the Howards in the eighteenth century. In writing of a Duke of Suffolk of mean family, our author may have been remembering Michael de la Pole. In footnote. The ceremony of the late king's burial was no sooner over, and the ministry settled for the present, than writs were issued for the meeting of a new parliament, which assembled with the highest opinion of their new sovereign deeply impressed on their minds, and a unanimity of design to be expeditious in every public business that should come under their consideration. Footnote. 13th of April, 1900. In footnote. It would be tedious to the reader, and is below the dignity of history, to enter minutely into the debates of the two houses, and to describe the numberless little circumstances that attend the inferior motions of the legislature. These matters are proper for the annals of the times, but it is our business to exhibit only those outlines and stronger strokes of colouring that characterise the manners of the age, and give the boldest ideas of the history of the period. The first affair of consequence that came before them was the civil list. There was a debt contracted on it of above five hundred thousand pounds. This was paid off, and with a liberality boundless, and perhaps in its consequences dangerous, they augmented that branch of the grants by half a million yearly, so that the civil list was now two millions a year. A prodigious sum increased by degrees for nearly four centuries. But what made this act of generosity imprudent to the highest degree was their settling it for life. It is true their opinion of their new sovereign was not groundless, but dangerous precedents ought never to be established. Nothing was of greater importance than their debates on the public debt. The amount of it was astonishing, although the fatal year 34, footnote, 1834, in footnote, had sponged eighty millions of it, it was now above two hundred and ten millions. The interest of this enormous sum alone amounted to eight millions five hundred thousand pounds, and as the principal was every year increasing to pay off the interest, it was evident that it must very soon come to a sponge. Footnote. The actual amount of the national debt in 1899 is £638,200,000, and the interest on it with the cost of management added is about £25 million. In footnote. To prevent the dreadful consequences such an event must be attended with, the Parliament laid a tax of 10% on stock for one year. But this was only a temporary expedient and ruined numbers whose property in the public funds was fluctuating. They voted five hundred thousand pounds to be expended in repairing the navy, and building new ships, a service most necessary and advantageous, for the Russian fleet threatened that of Britain with utter destruction in case of a new war. This, it was feared, was not far off, for the truce which had been signed was almost expired, without having as yet produced its desired effect a lasting peace. The grants on the whole amounted to fourteen millions. Footnote. The actual sum voted for 1899 is £112,900,000, just eight times the amount of our author's estimate. In footnote. A sum which would have astonished all the world had we not been in possession of such a flourishing commerce. But it was a time of peace, 
and had we been engaged in an expensive war we could have added very little to our income. But it will be necessary to present the reader with a view of the state of Europe at the time this monarch came to the crown. The nations that formed what we call the North, having been overturned by the immense power of the Russians, made one vast monarchy, which comprehended Muscovy, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Lithuania, now called the Empire of Russia. Peter the Fourth was the monarch that swayed the imperial scepter, a prince whose martial feats were hardly ever exceeded, if we consider his barbarous courage and successful temerity. The acquisitions he had made were the effects of mere personal courage in himself, that excited an ardor in his troops, and not the consequence of policy or design. He was an indifferent statesman, and a savage man. No sooner were his own and his predecessors' arms successful in the attacks which they made on their neighbors, than he turned all his efforts on raising a maritime power superior to that of Britain. For above eleven years all the ports of the Baltic were filled with preparations, and in the year 1897 Peter saw himself in possession of a naval force of two hundred men of war of the line, besides an innumerable number of frigates and smaller vessels. The greater part of this prodigious fleet was manned. The amazing trade of his extensive dominions produced him seamen in abundance. In a word, he was superior to England by sea, and the British coasts were open to his invasions, when a truce was patched up between the two nations. The marriage which had transferred the dominions of the House of Austria to that of Prussia, and with them the imperial title, seemed to have extinguished that generous bravery and political reputation which the kings of Prussia had enjoyed for so many centuries. The Emperor Frederick the Ninth was in every respect a weak prince. He was governed by his queen, and she by the intriguing Count Buckberg, Prime Minister, a man of abilities, but who was suspected of holding a correspondence with his master's enemies. Footnote. Presumably a member of the princely house of Leap Buckberg, Leap Schomburg, still existing. In footnote. The last Prince of Baden had gained great reputation in the last war with France, and by his victories had enabled Frederick to conclude an advantageous peace with that kingdom. But being Buckberg's enemy had lately been disgraced, and was entered into the English service, the late king receiving him with many marks of satisfaction. Charles X sat this time on the throne of France. He had the reputation of being a most cunning and politic prince, was brave, and had had some success at the head of his army against the imperialists. He had just entered into a close alliance with Russia, had the phantom of a balance of power been the foible of these days, such an alliance would have alarmed all Europe. But it had no other effect than making the King of Britain very jealous of his neighbor. Spain was in profound peace, excepting a temporary disturbance which arose from a third rebellion of the Portuguese, but was quelled with very little trouble and the conquered nation saw not the least hopes of regaining their independence. Footnote. We are unfortunately not given any date for this conquest of Portugal by Spain, somewhere in the early nineteenth century. End footnote. The peace of Italy was almost at an end. The preparations that were making by the two kings of Venice and Sicily prognosticated the renewal of their quarrel. The patrimony of St. Peter, which had so long been wrested from the church, was again likely to be the scene of devastation. It was supposed that Venice would have the assistance of France, 
who has always found her account in intermeddling with the affairs of Italy. Footnote. The kingdom of Venice must have been very small compared with that of the two Sicilies, as we find on page 64 that Milan was in the hands of the latter. Presumably the kingdom of Venice only comprised the dominions of the old Venetian Republic. End footnote. Such was the situation of affairs in Europe at the time George the Sixth came to the crown. End of chapter 1. Recording by Philip Gould.